0: Well, some of you were in the first service last week, and I mentioned the uh, young Japanese woman who had just recently been led to Christ and who had not, no knowledge of some of the uh, Christian uh, expressions and cliches that we use. She didn't know hallelujah and praise the Lord. So when she became a Christian, she was so excited, she just leaped up in the air and shouted, yippee! <laughs> and uh, that's my feeling about this, uh, this morning. We're just so delighted that the Lord has given us this, uh, this great building. Uh, it's, it's a gift. It came from him, and we're very thankful. Some people asked this morning if we're going to cover these windows. We are. There'll be, there'll be levelers on the windows and eventually drapes, so we don't have to look right into that glare. And uh, Richard Herdigan is responsible for this uh, stained glass window. Is Richard here? He's probably in the first service, and I forgot to mention that he's the artist who did this for us. But uh, we, we're just thankful that the Lord has made this arrangement for us. Turn with me, please, to the eighth chapter of Acts, Acts 8. I hope the approach that we've been taking to Acts has been helpful to you. I've always been a firm believer that uh, history can be the dullest subject in the world if uh, we view history merely in terms of dates and events and facts. But when we look at history through the eyes of the people that were involved, it takes on an entirely different look, and that's what we tried to do. We tried to see the history of the early church through the eyes of these actors, these great men and women who were responsible for the early expansion of the church. And the thing that comes through to me time and time again is the simple fact that these are just real people, plain, ordinary, garden-variety people just like you and me, through whom God accomplished uh, great things. Last week we began the story of Philip in chapter 8 and saw something of his uh, very successful ministry in Samaria. He went up from Jerusalem as a result of the dispersion which uh, Paul uh, produced, his persecution produced. And uh, Philip went up to Samaria and began his ministry there. The results are described in verses 6, 7, and 8 of chapter 8. The multitudes, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip. As they heard and saw the signs which he was performing, and then in verse 8, there was much rejoicing in that city. There was, wa- there was a widespread response to the gospel. But in verse 26, we read that an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. It's odd, isn't it, that the Lord would call Philip away from a very successful ministry in Samaria and send him out to an uninhabited region. That's actually the meaning of the term that's translated desert here. There's an international road that leads from Jerusalem down through what today is the Gaza Strip and on into Egypt. And it's this road that uh, the angel of the Lord is referring to, and it, and it is indeed desert road. It looks very much like I-84 as you head toward uh, Mountain Home. There are just no people out there, and it just seems odd that the Lord would take Philip out of this uh, highly successful, high-profile ministry and send him off to a a desert area where there's no one to preach to. But uh, Philip responded. In verse 27, Luke tells us that he arose and went. He was an obedient man. And behold, that is to his surprise there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and reading the prophet Isaiah. Philip was uh, hitchhiking along uh, this road on his way to Gaza. And suddenly over the hill came a war chariot and a tall, imposing, very impressively dressed black man seated in it. And we're told, although at this point Philip I'm sure didn't know, that he was the uh, he was a cabinet member of the Ethiopian uh, in the Ethiopian nation. He was Candace's treasure. Candace was the uh, queen mother in Ethiopia. We know her name, and she's known from uh, extra biblical history. And we know that uh, at this particular time. The actual king was her son, but he didn't rule because he was considered to be an offspring of the son, and he was too sacred to get involved in, uh, in the management of the nation. So his mother wore the royal pants in the family, and uh, she ruled Ethiopia. Now, this is not the Ethiopia of today. It would uh, This particular nation is located in what today would be Sudan in the interior of Africa. It was a very wealthy, powerful nation, and this man... Was the Secretary of the Treasury. He would be like Donald Reagan today. If you can imagine in your mind walking on I 84 and Donald Reagan coming by in his limousine, that's uh, somewhat the situation that Philip was confronted with. And Luke tells us that he was reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He had evidently purchased this uh, scroll in Jerusalem where he had gone to worship. He was probably not a convert to Judaism because at that particular time, eunuchs were excluded from uh, from worship in Jerusalem. He was probably what the Jews would call a God-fearer, a Gentile who read the scriptures and occasionally went to the synagogue, but who was not permitted to actually become a part of, of the spiritual community of Israel. He was an outsider. But he was a man with a, with a hungering, thirsting heart. He was open to truth. He was looking for truth wherever he could find it. We all acknowledge that people who are down and out need God, but we forget that people who are up and out also need God. Sometimes our, our civic leaders, prominent people in our communities, are, are, the, are the people whose hearts most hunger after God because they've arrived and they're unsatisfied. They know that, that their accomplishments have not, not done anything for them. And apparently, this was, this was the condition of this man. He was looking for God. And he's reading the scriptures. And so intense was he that he purchased a scroll of Isaiah. Now, don't think of a book like this that he was reading out. It was one of these huge scrolls that they had in those days. There were probably a couple of rolls about the size of a five-pound coffee can, about that long. The thing must have weighed about 50 pounds. he had it sitting in his lap, and he was reading out loud because people in those days read out loud. They didn't read silently. No one did. They were literate. They could read and write, but they didn't read well. They read on about a second- or third-grade level. Because you have to remember, we're exposed to literature all the time. Every, every time we turn around, we see something on a printed page. Letters, magazines, newspapers. They rarely saw anything printed. And so if they read it all, they read very poorly. And this man was sitting in his chariot, and he was spelling out the words as he went in, a, in what would, we would consider a very childish way, reading through Isaiah 53. And Luke tells us that Philip had run up. He heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? Uh, again, you, you have to put yourself in Philip's shoes. Can you imagine running up to Donald Reagan's limousine and rapping on the window and asking him if he understood what he was reading? <laughs> that happened to me once. I was walking through the library at the University of California in Berkeley and I saw a black student sitting in a carol reading a Bible. And I thought, Aha, this is my chance. <laughs> I can be like Philip. And so I uh, leaned over and whispered in his ear, do you understand what you're reading? And he laughed right out loud. Everyone in the library turned around and looked at us. Turned out that he was a young Christian from Nigeria. Unfortunately, he wasn't reading Isaiah. It would have made a much better story if he was. (laughs) He was reading Matthew, but it was the beginning of a a friendship. But in this case, uh, the man did not understand what he was reading. Luke tells us the portion of Scripture that perplexed him. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent so he does not open his mouth in humiliation. His judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth? Now that's the passage that's found in our Isaiah 53. It's a bit unlike the text that we have because he was reading out of the Greek translation which is a much more free translation so this doesn't exactly correspond. But it's the same passage and it perplexed him. He couldn't understand Who the author was referring to. Was he referring to himself? As as he puts it, the the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Prior to Jesus' time, no one had any idea what Isaiah 53 referred to. It's really clear from everything that the rabbis wrote that they did not have a clue. They didn't know if this passage referred to the nation of Israel or to the prophet or to whom it referred. They had no idea until Jesus came. And he explained the passage, often indirectly, sometimes very directly. In Matthew ten forty-five, Jesus said to the, to the apostles, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for the many. And he's quoting right out of Isaiah 53, where Isaiah says that the one who comes, who is the servant of the Lord, the one who comes to serve will justify the many. And when Jesus uttered those words, everyone knew that he was saying he was the one to whom Isaiah referred. But prior to Jesus coming, no one had an idea. And so Philip explained. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And we know how these early Christians explained the Old Testament. They read from the Old Testament, and they inserted the name of Jesus wherever it was appropriate. And so when Stephen read Isaiah 53, he read it, Jesus was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shears, is silent. So Jesus did not open his mouth. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And that's the nature of Luke's narrative, to shorten everything up. And Luke doesn't give us all the details, but apparently this was a long conversation, and and Philip told him about the one who came who became a man who did indeed serve wherever he went who had the greatest servant heart of all and who eventually went to the cross for our sins and who was raised for our justification and is living today as our Lord. And he told this man man, that if he repented of his sin that is he changed the direction of his life and he moved in a new direction and aligned himself with Jesus he would be forgiven of his sin. And the man Ben wanted to be baptized as a sign of that repentance, and he ordered the chariot to stop in verse 38. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azatos or Ashdod. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Samaria. They went their separate ways. The eunuch went back to the interior of Africa and one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, who died about 200 years, uh, 200 A.D., tells us that he became an evangelist throughout all of central Africa. And Philip went on his way, sharing the gospel in city after city, went uh, over to Ashdod in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah, that the Philistine seaboard, the place where the Philistine people had lived for so long would one day become a tribe of Judah. They would be included in. And then up to Lydda and Joppa, where we know from later events in Acts there were churches planted. And then on to Caesarea, where we find Philip some 20 or more years later in Acts 21, if you'll turn there with me, Acts 21, 7, by this time Luke had joined Paul and his band of men. And they were traveling together, planting churches. And Luke tells us, when we finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Talmud, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. We stayed with him. So there's uh, Philip, 20 years later, still plugging away, doing the job that God had given to him. He's like the man mentioned in Psalm 92, who's like a cedar planted in Lebanon. Who in his old age is still green and full of sap? He's still out doing the job that God has called him to do. But there's actually more said about his daughters than said about the evangelist. In verse nine: This man had four virgin or unmarried daughters who were prophetesses. They were they were at it themselves, busy proclaiming the gospel. They weren't uh, frustrated old maids. They were bright, articulate spinsters. <laughs> useful. Now back to Acts 8, please. I'd like to make some observations from this passage that I, it, it struck me as worthwhile as I read through it this past week. The first thing I want to say is simply to remind us that Philip was a layman. He, he wasn't a professional. He wasn't theologically trained, not in any Not in any uh, institutional sense. It's obvious that he was uh, knowledgeable in the scriptures. How many of us could uh, preach Jesus from Isaiah 53? He knew the word, and that's a reminder to us that we need to give ourselves to studying the scriptures and becoming aware of of the truth that God has given to us. But uh, he was not a pro. He was a layman. You know, it's silly to argue that there is a distinction between there is no distinction between the clergy and laity because there is. We clergy are paid to be good. You laity are good for nothing. <laughs> but, but really, there is no difference. I am no more or less responsible for the fulfillment of the Great Commission than you are. All of us are called to be witnesses to the truth the great commission was never rescinded and still ours to obey and here's a man who went everywhere just a common ordinary believer who had a vital effective powerful ministry wherever he went he proclaimed the truth he was useful in god's hand the second thing that i observe from this from this passage is that uh, philip was a man who was available to the Spirit of God. and Thomas has said over and over again, it's not our ability that matters, it's our availability. It's simply a matter of putting ourselves at God's disposal and saying, here I am, I'll, I'll go wherever you want me to do, I'll be whatever you want me to be, I'll let you schedule my day, I have plans for this day, but you have the right to interfere and interrupt and set up appointments on your own and I'll simply trust you to put me in the right place at the right time so I can meet the right people and say the right things. And that's, what, that's when the Christian life gets exciting. If you're bored by the Christian life, then you simply don't understand this principle. The only thing predictable about the Spirit of God is that he's utterly unpredictable. You never know what he's going to do next. And if we put ourselves in his hands, then he's going to use us in ways that exceed our expectations. I think I told you before, the young man I met on the campus of the uh, uh, Foothill Junior College down in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was walking across the campus one day and I was on my way to meet a student who didn't show up. I spent half of my life working with students that never showed up. I learned to carry a book with me everywhere I went. And on this particular day, uh, my appointment didn't make it and I saw a young man sitting on a grassy knoll reading a newspaper and he didn't seem to be too involved. So I sat down and began a chat with him and after a few minutes, I asked him if he had any interest in in spiritual things and he said you know it's really odd you should ask I've just come back from Vietnam he was over there for about 18 months and he was badly wounded and he came back psychologically shot to pieces and and he said i was just thinking that i need to give my life to Christ and it turns out he had a master sergeant while he was overseas who was a southern baptist who'd shared the gospel with him every day it drove him crazy <laughs> He had a mother who prayed for him and who wrote him letters regularly encouraging him to come to the Lord and, and he was sitting there trying to decide whether or not to make that decision when I just happened to be there because a student happened not to show up. And that's what makes life exciting to know that God is moving you here and there and wherever he needs you and using you as his instrument at the right time, at the right place with the right people. I like think I mentioned, too, a couple of years ago, Carolyn and I were flying from, from London to New York City, and there was a mix-up in the seating, and a man who was supposed to sit in the back of the bus ended up sitting next to Carolyn, and she started talking to him and eventually started talking to him about the Lord, and it turned out that his wife was the best friend of Carolyn's best friend back in California who lived in Saratoga, who's been praying for that man for years. And flying across the Atlantic Ocean, God got us together. Now, that's exciting. Now, now, the Christian life isn't always like that. Sometimes it's pretty routine. It's pretty daily. Pretty pedestrian. You just walk along. And, and believe God whether you have any feelings or not. But every, every once in a while, God puts something like that in your life to let you know that he's at work to use you in significant ways. The third thing I notice about Philip is that he really loved people. I heard Joe Aldrich say a few weeks back, people really don't care what you know unless they know that you care. That's so true. I remember talking to a Jewish student once in a, in a coffee house. And I was sharing the four laws with him, and he said, I just heard it. And he said, this morning, somebody went through these uh, four laws with me, and he said, I had the distinct impression that he was looking right straight through my head at somebody on the other side. Boy, did that ever hit me because I thought of the times that I've rattled off the gospel to people and really didn't care at all about the individual. More preoccupied with my presentation than than the person. But God has called us to love people. Red, yellow, black, white. They are precious in his sight. Are they precious in our sight? You know, racism is a sin. Bigotry is a sin. It's wrong. Those are all superficial differences that really make no difference whatever. Philip wasn't put off by the fact that this man was black. It didn't matter. Or that he was non-Jewish. It didn't matter. Because he saw there was something that far transcended any cultural difference, and that is a hunger for God in the hearts of people. He was a man that needed help. Uh, Billy Graham tells a story. I can't remember if he told it at The Crusader or if I read it somewhere, but he tells about a young woman who lived in the South during the Jim Crow days. I, I lived in Texas during those years, and I still remember the buses with the signs. blacks to the back of the bus, and the whites all sat in the front. And there were there were drinking fountains all over town, white only, black only. And uh, Graham told about this young woman who got on the bus and walked all the way to the back of the bus and sat down with a right next to a black woman and began to chat with her, befriend her. The driver got up and walked to the back of the bus and said, you can't sit back here. And she says, well, I must because my master is colorblind. <laughs> That's what we have to remember. Our Lord was not put off by the Samaritan woman at the well. He loved her. It doesn't make any difference what color people are, what their national origin is. It doesn't matter. They're people. We mustn't reject them. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that... Because of the cross, the inner wall of division has been torn down. There was no greater division than that between Jew and Gentile, and all of that has been torn down. The ground of acceptance now is not some standard that I have, some cultural standard that's purely artificial. The ground of acceptance is forgiveness, the forgiveness that comes through the cross. We're all in need of it. And we need to love people because Jesus did. And that's what will open doors, frankly. When people know we care they 'll listen, and we make ourselves available to god there 's no end to what God can do; He will exceed your wildest dreams and expectations, and that 's what makes a Christian life exciting. I had the neatest experience this past week. I have a friend uh, some of you may know, John Landreth, who is the best friend i ever had, and uh, he died last, last Friday, went to be with the Lord. He's had cancer for about the last six months, and it was really a very gracious thing of the Lord to take him home. But through those final months, as he was in uh, increasing uh, discomfort, he he used to go from bed to bed in the ward at Stanford, the cancer ward at Stanford, and share the gospel with ill patients. I have no idea how many people he led to Christ during those years. I told him he was like... Uh, like Samson, he slew more Philistines in his death than he ever did in his life. He was just an amazing man. He went out in a blaze of glory. But it was, um, it was tough. It was hard for those of us that knew him. And I was flying down to San Francisco Monday morning for the funeral, and my thoughts were just full of myself and my relationship with John. I sat down uh, in an aisle seat, and I really wanted to be left alone. And I sat next to a young man, about 13 years old, very attractive young man, and right next to him a, a woman in her early 30s who lives in Las Pinas, California. He's, she's the wife of a rancher there. And we struck up a brief conversation, and she was reading Helter Skelter, Truman Capote's book. And the uh, boy became interested in the book, and he started looking at the uh, pictures in the center of the book, and they're pretty macabre. Some of you have seen them. And I didn't know what to say. What any of my business, and I uh, didn't want to tell her what she should do, so I just stayed out of it. And anyway, I wanted to be left alone and didn't want to talk, so I went to sleep. And as we were descending over Tahoe, the uh, captain woke everybody up to tell them to be sure and look at Tahoe. <laughs> and that's where you begin your descent, into San Francisco. And I knew we only had about 15 minutes, so I started waking up and... And just as I came out of the fog, I heard that boy say to the woman next to him, tell me, do you think there's anything after death? Or do we just die like animals and cease to exist? And she said, I don't know. She said, I think about that all the time. I don't know if there's anything after life or not. I don't know if there's heaven or hell or what's out there. And uh, I sort of injected myself into the conversation and, shared the gospel with him and told him about my friend John and the hope that he had. But I couldn't get out of my mind the fact that I woke up at exactly the right time. If I had been awakened five minutes later, I would have missed that whole conversation and we would have parted and I never would have realized the hunger in the hearts of those people and I wouldn't have had an opportunity to tell them that there's hope. And I say there is a Lord out there who's putting all the pieces together, weaving it together in an organized, orderly way. I don't think anyone is going to be lost Who wants to find him? Here's a man on a desert road headed away from Jerusalem. The Lord saw to it that Philip got to the right place at the right time and he was the right man for that situation. And that's what I believe the Lord is doing in our life. And all we have to do to be a part of it is to say I'm available. Use me today. Put me to your intended purpose. Wake up every morning and say, Lord, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I'll be whatever you want me to be. This is what I have planned, but you have the right to alter my, my plans and put me to your intended use. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a sovereign God who has planned and designed our lives according to a perfect plan. And we want to be part of it. We want to be used today, Father. And for the rest of our lives, we want to be the right people in the right place at the right time. And We know it's impossible for us to know what that place is. And so we simply put ourselves at your disposal. We want to be available, to be used, to be put to the task for which you've designed us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.